Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for the chance we have to be in this place today, Lord, to be able to stand with confidence, not because we're arrogant or cocky. We know, Lord, how small we are and how frail and how weak we are. But we stand because we're confident in how big and strong and how in control you are. We, Lord, Lord, we know that when this world doesn't make sense, that you always make sense. That when this world is constantly changing, you remain forever the same. And even though things might be different tomorrow than they were today, you are the same yesterday and today and will be the same forever. Father, as we think about the graduates that are heading out of high school and heading out of college and going into the workforce or into college themselves, Lord, or just into, into life as, a, as an adult, Lord, a lot of us that are older, we look and see the uncertainty and the, the, the dis, uh, disunity in the world today, and it worries us, Lord. But Lord, we know that you have the power to keep and to protect and to care for everybody. And we just ask, Lord, that you would uh, keep your hand of protection on those graduates and all of us, Lord. Lord, today we thank you that we have a chance to open your word and to be fed by it, encouraged by it. And I just pray, Lord, that as we open your word today, that you might open our hearts to what it is you have to say to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is Graduation Sunday, and some of you guys, how many of you like me? This is kind of a, a, a rough, a rough uh, year for me this year, because I realize that I've been out of school entirely too long, all right? How many of you have looked and realized, I've been, how many of you have been out of school over 10 years already, all right? How many still out of school 20 years or more, 30 years or more, 40 years or more? It's getting slim right there, Jody and Ira. 50 years or more. <laughs> Just picking. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, alive. It, it's, it's crazy. And then you can ask Mr. Jody or Mr. Ira, and they can tell you it just seems like a few years ago they were in high school. Life passes us by very, very quickly. And, uh, and so I just want to share something with the graduates that are here today, but also with all of you guys that are here today, because this is really a decision that all of us make. We, we think of stepping out of high school and into college or stepping out of college and into the workforce and into full adulthood. And we often think, wow, there's just, uh, uh, those are big, big steps in life. But some of the biggest choices that we make are actually some of the most simple, basic choices that we make day in and day out, quietly, um, when, uh, when maybe no one else even notices what it is that we're choosing. You know, the book of Philippians, we started a, a sermon series there last week, and that book is absolutely full of quotable motto kind of verses. Um, things like, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition. Make your requests known to God in the book of Philippians. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. One of my friend's favorite passages, Philippians. Uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You've heard that preached before and shared before. Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You got it. <laughs> it's in Philippians, as well as to live as Christ, to die as gain. And there's just many, many more. Um, I, I, I remember the 
to uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me really well. It's one of the first verses I learned because my mom got me a t-shirt with that on it. And I shared with everybody the first go around. I said, I can tell you exactly what color of t-shirt that was. I can tell you the color of the, of the, of the writing across that t-shirt. I, I know everything about it. If you held it up and said, is this yours? I could say, yeah, that's my shirt right there. Um, I would have known that. But I had no idea as a kid what it really meant. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Partially because I really hadn't experienced much of life. I didn't know all the things that I would have to go through that without Christ by my side would be, that would be absolutely impossible. And it's kind of like that with this final verse that we read as well. It says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It seems like an easy verse to quote kind of rolls off the tongue. It's kind of a slogan sort of verse. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But when you think about the context that Paul wrote it in, it starts to make that verse look a lot more humbling. Paul, as you remember from last week, if you were here and if you weren't, just let me catch you up. Paul is actually in prison at this point and, uh, and is, is under arrest. He's going to have to stand before the leader, the emperor of the Roman Empire and make a defense as to why he was causing all the social disturbances that he was in Jerusalem. And, and there were so many things in Paul's story that he had no idea of, so many uncertainties, um, that, that it gives this verse a lot, more, a lot more base when you think about that. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Every religion in the world really seeks to answer two questions. There are two questions that I think mankind as a whole, we just wonder about. And those questions are simply this. Number one, what is life? And the second is really similar, what is death? What is life and what is death? And in each major world religion seeks to answer that a little bit differently. If you're a Buddhist, for instance, to achieve good karma is life and to, and to, uh, and to die is to hope for a better uh, reincarnation. If you are a, a believer in Islam, to live is to obey Allah and let your good, out deeds, or your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds in life. And if you do, then death is to achieve a personal paradise. If you're a humanist, which a lot of people really are in our world today, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of us are Americans especially, we're humanists, we're kind of worshipers of self. And, and the humanist answers a question this way, to live is self and to die is a complete loss because you lose everything. But Paul answers that question very differently. Christianity answers that question very differently because Paul says in Christianity to live is all about Christ and to die, well that's where the gain comes. Let me just read for you this whole section of scripture that this little tidbit of scripture is, is kind of packaged in because I think it'll really help us to understand the spirit of what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate. We're going to start in verse number 18 of Philippians, the first chapter. So if you have a Bible, flip there or scroll to it on your phone real quick. Philippians 1, verses 18, and we're going to go through about 30. So uh, hang on here, and we're going to read kind of a big section. Paul says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will not be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage uh, so that now, and, so that now <clears throat> as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me is 
live. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what should I choose? I, I, I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue uh, with all of you for your progress and for the joy of your faith. So that through my being with you, again your boasting in Christ will bound on account of me. And then he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you, in my absence, I will know that you're standing firm in the Spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by, that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and here that I still have. When you read that passage kind of in the place where Paul wrote it, when you don't just pull it out and kind of slap it on the side of a coffee mug or on a bumper sticker of a car, it really, it really has a lot, more, a lot more emotion behind it, doesn't it? Paul is in this place where he's wrestling and he's saying, guys, I'm really torn right now. I'm in a place of captivity. My future is very uncertain. For me to live is Christ, but in many ways I would rather pass on. But if I live, I know that, that my life here is fruitful and that I can accomplish things, that I can encourage people, that I can share, I can teach. But if I go to be with Christ, my work is done. And then he says, in essence, he says, I'm going to let God sort this out. I'm going to continue to be faithful, but I want you to do the same. I want you to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul is in prison, and he's writing to a church in Philippi that is going through difficult times. Not that we can really fully appreciate what it's like to be in a persecuted church, but we can certainly, in this particular season of life, understand what it's like to, well, to be in a difficult time. To be in a place where there's a lot of uncertainties in our society and with our friends groups and about the future, about our own jobs and our own careers. And Paul said, look, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But no matter what happens, I know what I'm going to do and I know what I want you to do. I want you to continue moving forward in the faith. I want you to continue advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, in essence, is answering a question that all of us have to answer. And today in our lesson, we're going to share a few of these questions because he really, by his statements, asks us questions. And that first question is simply this. What is your life going to equal? Is your life going to equal yourself? Or is your life going to equal Christ? Paul talks about life, and Paul talks about death, and he talks about a battle between wanting to do what God's called us to do and what it is that we feel comfortable in doing. And in so many ways, the world kind of revolves around us, doesn't it? You talk to a lot of graduates, and a lot of things that we talk about are, hey, what are your dreams for the future? What are your hopes? 
What are your ambitions? What are your plans? What do you want to do when you graduate high school? What are you going to go to college for? And, and that's all good. We, we need to have a plan for the future. We need to have a reason why we're living. I'm not being critical of any of that. But if you think about it, so much of that really revolves around us. What are, what are my plans and my dreams and my ambitions and my hopes? And Paul is doing something a little bit different here. He's saying, I'm not so worried about my dreams, plans, hopes, and future. But I'm worried about Christ's. There's a modern kind of parable told of a little boy who was given the opportunity to make a choice. He could either become great big or he could become very, very small. And he had to choose. Now, I don't know what you would choose. Think about it for a second. If someone would let you get great big or you could become very, very small, which would you choose? That's a tough one, right? Because on part, partly it would be very fun to be big. No one's going to mess with you anymore. No one's going to harass you. You can handle whatever it is that life throws at you. And predictably, this little guy chose, he wanted to be big. He wanted to be big, big, big. He was so big that he could walk around the earth in just a few hours. And within a few days, he had seen everything that there was to see. He really didn't have any friends. He didn't have much to experience because he was so big. He was so distant. He was so far away that life really lost its meaning. But had he chosen to become very small, <laughs> no doubt his backyard would have probably given him a whole lifetime of exploration. It would have been like the Amazon rainforest, wouldn't it? <laughs> because we all desire to be big. But in reality, life is best experienced small. We all like to make ourselves the center of our own solar system. We like for the rest of the world and the people around us to kind of revolve around us. But as we get older, I find that there's a tendency among people who mature to, to desire to be smaller, to desire to, to enjoy things and allow God to become bigger. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we can just merely add Jesus to our life, can't we? Here we are in the middle of that solar system, and I want some Jesus. I want some church. I want to have some, uh, some faith as a part, of my, a part of my world right here. So I'm going to stick it right here, and I'll see you, Jesus, every, every so once in a while when I kind of revolve around that way. When my life turns to Sunday, I'll show up at church, or, or, or when there's a special event, I'll think about you, Jesus. But, but the Bible doesn't teach us to add Jesus to our life. The Bible teaches for us to place Jesus at the center of our life. And I want you just to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here when he makes this simple, rather basic statement, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. What Paul is really saying is, I've taken myself out of the middle of that solar system and I've put Christ in the middle of my life. And that's a radical, radical change. We look back at the Old Testament and sometimes we kind of wag a finger at the Old Testament Israelites. Because God had rescued them from the land of Egypt. He brought them to the land of promise. He placed them in this beautiful place where every need and every concern was cared for. As you know the story. And then they spent the next generations kind of waffling back and forth. For a while they would be gung-ho for God and everything was about God. And, and things would go well in their land and God would bless it. And then 
And then all of a sudden they would look around and they were like, man, I want to serve those gods. I, I want to serve those idols. I want to follow those particular sets of religions and beliefs. And so they would start worshiping those idols and serving those gods and things predictably took a nosedive. And then there would be a revival again and they would come back to God. And it's a whole cycle of the Old Testament before the captivity is just them coming to God, falling away from God, coming to God, falling away from God. And you know, it's, it's something that we look at sometimes through the lens of history and reading those old stories and we're like, why didn't you guys just get it? God was so good to you. Why, why did you, why'd you have to trade in a living, breathing God that, that cares about you and blesses you for a half-fish God that you call Baal that you cut out of stone? That doesn't make any sense. But you know, we struggle with idolatry as well. It just doesn't look the same as their idols. Most basically defined, I think, idolatry is simply anything that gets more glory or more weight or more importance in our lives than God does. What was the first commandment that God gave the people in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. And that wasn't an accident. God realized that once you get that order figured out, in fact, Jesus was asking the New Testament, remember, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the law and the prophets are summed up in these two commandments. Putting God in that top rung place is absolutely essential. As human beings, we are made to worship. The question is, what will we worship? And for many of us, it's God. And for some of us, we worship ourselves or somebody else. And that always gets us in trouble. So let me ask you this morning, what is it that drives you? What is it that really pushes you forward? What is it that you worry about the most? What is it that if you failed at it or if you lost it, you would be completely devastated? What do you use for comfort when things go badly and you're feeling really down about it? What, what kind of things preoccupy you that you daydream about? Because those are the things that drive you, the things that make you feel worthy, the things that, that if you got an unanswered prayer about it would rock your faith. Those are the things that really motivate us and drive us. And I think there's four big superficial categories of things that tend to motivate us. As, as human beings. And these aren't specific things, but these are kind of, the, kind of the overall categories of things that a lot of other stuff kind of falls into. And the first of those four things is that a lot of us are motivated by, we have an idol of comfort. And that can mean a lot of different things, not just that we like to be comfortable, but maybe we really like our privacy because we don't want anyone prying in our life and asking us troubling questions about the reasons why we do or say or behave in certain ways. We, we like a, a, a stress-free kind of lifestyle. We love freedom and we, we worship that, that comfortableness, that freedom. Sometimes our greatest nightmares are stress and demands that kind of rob that from us. And sometimes people can feel hurt by us, not because uh, we intend to, but just because we are so, so intent on being comfortable that we kind of pull into ourselves or when they need us, we're not willing to kind of get into a difficult situation. So we kind of abandon them in, our, in their time of greatest need. You see some of this with the disciples. Jesus has a great need. Peter, James, and John are sleeping. They really, they really loved comfort. And then another one of those kind of big category sort of things is approval. 
Some of us just really live for, we're driven for, we are in love with, we idolize other people's approval. We need that affirmation. We want that love. We want a relationship. Our greatest nightmare is, is being rejected because we can't handle the thought that someone wouldn't want us or wouldn't need us, and that's just frightening for us. And sometimes people feel like we, we're kind of trying to mother them or, or, or kind of boss them around, but it's simply because we're so scared on the inside that we're, we're trying to use other people uh, to kind of keep other distances, other things away. Sometimes we like those who love comfort, we, we tend to try to stay away from difficult situations. And then there's some people that are, are very, very different. You might look at that and say, Jason, I am not in love with comfort. I do not worship approval of other people. Then there's another kind of mold of person, the third category of things, the people who love to be in control. Now, they really like self-discipline, they like certainty, they like standards because all those things are measurable. Those are all control mechanisms, right? Where they can control themselves and they can control other people. But their greatest nightmare is uncertainty. When things aren't, when things aren't like they're supposed to be, it's kind of pretty scary for them. And they do a lot of worrying because they want to be the one calling the shots. They want to be the one that has everything manipulated. And sometimes they become very manipulative people working behind the scenes to try to make other people do what they want them to do. The fourth big category is people that are in love with power. They want to be successful. They want to win. They want to be a person of influence. And their greatest nightmare is humiliation or not being noticed. People feel used by them because really they use people. And a lot of times anger tends to be an emotion that boils up in them in ways that they would like for it not to. Now, I want you to know that in each of those four categories, those are all good things. There's nothing wrong feeling comfortable and getting comfortable once in a while. There's nothing wrong having affirmation and telling people, hey, good job. I really appreciate what you're doing. There's nothing wrong having control because we need people to be leaders in the world that are shaping the course of things. Without leadership, there's just mayhem and confusion. So we need leadership. And certainly, we want people to be winners. The Bible talks about that. Work as though you're working for the Lord. Give 100%. Here's the problem with those four big categories. If those four big categories become the thing that drives us, if they become the thing that's in the driver's seat of our life, if they become that thing that we idolize, we're in for big trouble. You notice that Paul did not say from his prison cell to live as self. He didn't say to live as comfort. Paul didn't say to live is to be approved by other people because if he had looked for approval, Paul was doing everything incorrectly right there, right? He didn't say to live is to have control of life because he was completely out of control of his life. Everyone else was telling him what to do. He was under guard, arrested. To live is power. He had none. No, that's not what he said. He said to live is Christ because he knew that Christ was greater than all the idols that we bow down to. Christ is greater than our version of comfort because Christ can comfort us in a way that goes beyond our ability to understand it. God can come to us. In fact, the Bible talks about a peace that passes understanding. 
And some of you who have walked through some difficult paths before, you know exactly what that feels like. You're completely overwhelmed. You go to God in prayer and things just seem like they're going to be all right. God can comfort us in ways that we cannot comfort ourselves. You want approval? That's great because we all need approval. Think about this for just a moment. While you and I were still miserable, messed up people, we were still broken when we had nothing to offer and no reason for God to go out and to, to bring us in, Christ died for us. The Bible says that while we were still sinners and strangers and aliens from God, Christ died for us because he loves us so much. Paul says that we, we would work as one who is approved, right? God's, God's approval is so much deeper than any approval that, that people can give us. What about control? Well, guys, Christ holds the control of everything in this world. We don't think about that sometimes, but Christ is the one in control. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that all things have been put under his feet. And what about power? <laughs> the beautiful thing is, is that any, if you've ever been in power or control, you know that sometimes if things go wrong, you're the first person to be humiliated. But Christ never will leave us humiliated. He is faithful. And like that last song that we just sang said, you can hold on to that. And that's something that's very, very needed in life. You know what slavery really is, guys? Slavery is when we try to cling to things that this world offers, when we try to find our, our comfort, when we try to find our affirmation, when we try to find our control and our power in things that are here. That's slavery. And that takes us in a very bad direction. So as we look at this verse, the second real question that Paul asks is this, what is real gain? How do you really come out ahead? Years and years ago, there was a poster that, that, somebody, uh, that somebody gave me as a kid. It says, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? And, uh, but the truth is that he who dies with the most toys still dies, right? You don't get to take anything from it. The Bible says that. Naked we came into the world, naked we will leave, right? You, you, don't, you don't get to take stuff with you. So how do you come out ahead in life? How do we really gain? Paul gave us an answer for that as well. The truth is that we have to face the reality that everybody in this room, at some point, unless God comes again, we're all going to die. Now, I know that's not the most cheery thing on graduation Sunday. You guys are about to launch out into the world and hear the preacher saying we're all going to die. But listen, the reason why I want you to think about that is this, guys, because the choices that you make in the next four or five years will do a lot to define the path that your life goes on. And I want more than anything else for your life to go on a godly path because when it does, there's just so many good things that happen and so many bad things that don't. The truth is, is that how we define life determines how we face death. How we look at life really kind of shapes how we look at passing from this life. If it's all about comfort, then we're not going to be too satisfied with death, right? They make the box that, we, that they put us in when we pass away a casket, they make it look very comfortable. But, but death is not a comfortable thing. If it's all about control, we're not going to be comfortable at all with death, right? Because death is completely out of our control. We don't know necessarily when it's going to come or in what form it's going to come. In fact, Paul says this in verse 23. He said, I desire to, de to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Christ, or Paul had analyzed this and he said, you know what? You really win when you go and get your reward, when you're with God in heaven. 
Now, the message of humanism, and a lot of us think this way, I think this way, thought this way for a lot of my life, is that, that to departing, departing with Christ would be good, but I want to live my life here first, right? There's so much I want to do, and I think that's understandable. But Paul writes this in 2 Timothy in verse number 1, verses 12 and 13 or so. He says, but I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I get it. Sometimes, sometimes life is going to continue and carry on. And if it does, that's great. But make sure that you're living your life here so that whenever God calls your name, you're ready to answer that call. Paul said, I'm confident in what I'm doing. And I want you to be as confident in what you're doing as well. If you kill me, I'm not defeated. If you take my freedom, I'm not in chains. You can throw me in prison and beat my back and my friends and I will hold a worship service in the middle of the night. You can take away my money. You can take away my freedom. That's all okay because I have Jesus Christ and that's all the freedom that I need for me to live as Christ and for me to die as gain. What Paul is really inviting us to do here, guys, is to join a battle. Because that little phrase is so easy to say, but if you've lived it for a while, you know it's, it's a difficult challenge to fulfill. He's told us what life is about. He's told us what death is about. He tells us that there's a battle that each of us has to fight while we're here on earth. Look, look at verse 27. He said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, I might hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he starts off there and he says, Listen, I, I, want, you to, I want you to shape your life I want your manner of life to be worthy of the gospel. In other words, I want you to live up to the opportunity that you've been given. If you're a Christian here today, if you've had your sins washed away in waters of baptism, if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you have an amazing opportunity. That opportunity is to be a child of God, but it comes with responsibility. He said, I want you to make sure that your manner of life, the way that you talk, the things that you do with other people, the way you love and share and build into people's lives, I want you to make certain that that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, if you've been given a chance like I have to step back from, from a very broken life and to have a new shot, let's make the most of that, right? But Paul uses something else in the second part of this verse that I want us to point out. The city of Philippi, actually, in that region, was fairly densely populated with retired Roman citizens or Roman uh, soldiers. They were given a, a piece of land there, and, and so this was a great opportunity for them. So Paul is writing to a church that no doubt has a lot of Roman soldiers, that, or at least past Roman soldiers, in that church. And also that region had a kind of a unique relationship with Rome, because if you lived there, you received Roman citizenship. And the people of Philippi were very, very proud of this. And Paul is hitting on both of these buttons right here. He says, you, you, there's a manner of life that's worthy. You're a Roman citizen, and you know that when a Roman citizen does certain things or carries themselves a certain way, there's a certain weight that sets on that. We're all Americans from the United States of America, right? And we kind of know that there's a responsibility that comes with that. 
But then Paul talks to the soldiers a little bit in the second part because there's a word there that we translate as striving side by side. But as you look in the original Greek language, that was a word that was specifically used by soldiers to describe a type of battle formation that the Romans were famous for using. You've probably seen that or remember that in, in your textbooks when you were kids. The Romans carried a great big shield, a very tall shield that went from the middle of their calf pretty much to over the top of their heads. Each man in the regiment carried one of these as well as a short sword. And, and when they got into a, a battle formation, they, they, they would have a place in this, in this assembly. Some of the guys stood on the sides and they shielded from the sides. Some of the guys shielded from the front the other side, other guys held the shields over the top of their heads and they pretty much made a mobile cube where these guys would just puncture an enemy line and they had those sh short swords from the inside. They're working out through the cracks and it was very, very effective. The Romans conquered a lot of very, very tough foes using this formula. And that phrase that Paul uses there, striving side by side, is a direct, it comes directly from that, from that Greek, uh, Greek word. They knew exactly what Paul was talking about right there. When he said that, no doubt their cartoon bubbles went off and they immediately saw themselves back on the battlefield doing battle. And Paul said, I want you to realize, church, that, that this isn't just an individual thing, but that we're striving together as a body of believers, as a family of faith to finish the race and to uphold the name of Christ. We talk about how the church is a family, and it is. This place is a family, and this is a place where you find family, and sometimes you find people that are closer than family within the church body, but we also forget that sometimes the church is an army. And scripture is full of metaphors of, 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 of the church being a victorious army going out and fighting for a cause. It's a group of people who are doing battle together. We're doing battle together against a lot of the temptations that all of us struggle with that are very, very similar. We're doing battle against outside forces that are pressing in on us, that are trying to take away our faith and take away our hope. <laughs> and that's why this whole text is so striking and so powerful. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But all of us together, all of us together can, can carry way more weight than any one of us can by ourselves. There's a great old Vince Lombardi quote that I love. Vince Lombardi famously said, I believe, I firmly believe that any man's finest hour, the greatest fulfillment of all he holds dear, is that moment when he has worked his heart out on a good cause and lies exhausted on the field of battle victorious. Now, Vince Lombardi is obviously talking about football, but the same thing is true in life. We need a cause sometimes, and the church gives us one of the most powerful causes that we can ever really imagine, to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to share just one more little bit of this, of this text. We skipped over it because it's so easy to skip over. It just goes better to say, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But that wouldn't be fair to what scripture actually says because there's three little words that Paul puts ahead of that. He says, for to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. What Paul is really saying here is this is my personal conviction. 
These are my personal marching orders. This is the formula for how I am going to serve God. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But he also reminds us that that decision is a personal decision that each and every one of us has to make. I can preach a million sermons. I can holler and yell and be as passionate as I want to be. And I can't make any one of you guys make Christ the center of you, your, your universe. Your moms and dads, for those of you who are graduates, they, they can pour into you and they can share opportunities with you. They can send you to church camp. They can read the Bible and pray with you. But we can't make you put Christ in the middle of your life. It's our own job, our own personal conviction to join with Paul as he said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So can I ask you this morning, what are you living for? Are you living for yourself? Because a lot of us do. But there's something much, much better out there, church. There's something that will give us much more comfort, much deeper affirmation. Will give us a much more deep sense of the world being in control and recognizing that the real power of the universe is not in our flimsy hands, but is in the one who created it all. That's in Jesus Christ. It's our job to simply say, I'm gonna put you there. I'm gonna take myself out of the center of the universe. I'm gonna put you back where you belong and you should have been all along. We're gonna sing a song together this morning. If somebody has a need, if somebody just wants to step out and say, hey, I just need prayer, this is a great time to do that. Once we finish this song, Mr. Banks is going to come and he's going to lead our hearts as we begin to prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper. Let's sing together.